as most people know, you know, preventative primary care and preventative care, that's really like the least expensive thing to do. If you, and especially if you do it early and often. And so we thought, okay, why don't we start a business that is helping kind of restore the integrity of primary care and do so outside of the insurance fee-for-service kind of infrastructure and build technology in a company designed around supporting that. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Today I have Zach Holdsworth with me, and I'm really super excited to be talking to him about his brand, which is called Hint Health. He's the co-founder and CEO. So welcome to the podcast, Zach. Really excited to chat with you about Hint. Thank you. I'm also excited. Why don't you all start by just giving us a little background on the company, and then we'll talk a little bit about, about how you decided to do this. Yeah, absolutely. We are Our company is focused on supporting the direct primary care movement. So this is a kind of a, a group of doctors that don't accept traditional insurance and typically will charge a monthly membership fee for essentially unlimited access to primary care and telemedicine. And we support this community through technology, so in educational, different education assets as well, but primarily technology, where we have the membership management and billing and kind of payment system for these doctors across both their consumer business as well as their direct-to-employer channels as well. So we power those kind of end-to-end for this community. And then we also have a kind of a network that we recently launched called Hint Connect, where we have contracts with our people on the platform, doctors on the platform, and we can sell the access to that network through either employers or kind of other innovative new carriers or kind of groups that want to integrate DPC into their plans. That's the high level. Can you talk a little bit for people who don't really know how pervasive it's become to have doctors that are on this kind of plan where they don't accept insurance and they do let you have unlimited access? I mean, there's a lot of chatter, I think, among early adopters in the health and wellness community about this kind of medicine. But could you talk a little bit about why you thought this was a good idea and how how many of those doctors are actually out there? Yeah, I'd say addressing the, the sort of why we did this first. The way I tend to think about it is oh, when we started Hint, our goal was to try to figure out what is a business that in theory at scale could really fundamentally transform healthcare. And we, we had this thesis that most of the innovation we were seeing was really incremental and it wasn't going to really move the needle at scale. And the reason for that is because a lot of the innovation is sitting on top of a broken system. It's sitting on top of a broken chassis. And that is the insurance fee-for-service infrastructure, right? Like the, the majority of healthcare payments, one way or another, run through that. And so it's really hard to build on top of a broken system. That was kind of one thing, and that introduces a bunch of incentive misalignment and overhead and all sorts of stuff that's not good. And one of the impacts that it had is that it had broken primary care. And as most people know, you know, preventative primary care and preventative care, that's really like the least expensive thing to do. If you, and especially if you do it early and often. And so we thought, okay, why don't we start a business that is helping kind of restore the integrity of primary care and do so outside of the insurance fee-for-service kind of infrastructure 
and build technology and a company designed around supporting that. And that kind of led us to this community of DP direct primary care doctors and clinicians that were already doing this about you know eight, nine years ago or so. And we thought, okay, why don't we support this community? And since then, I'd say it's, it's still not the mainstream, obviously, right? This is clearly not the mainstream. When we started, there was maybe hundreds of doctors doing this. And now there's thousands, but probably not tens of thousands. And if you look at the total number of primary care physicians, it's you know in the hundreds of thousands, right? So it's the single digit percentage points of doctors doing this. But it is growing pretty quickly. And it's a movement that is consistently growing. Right, sort of, and slowly picking up steam. How did you figure out that there were all these doctors that weren't accepting insurance that needed support? Like, what led you to this in the first place? <laughs> we sort of went through this once we'd figured out the rubric for what we wanted to do, which was we kind of spent a little bit of time on that just now. But once we kind of figured it out, then we spent a bunch of time looking at different ideas, and most of them failed the rubric, which is, you know, Will this at scale, would this change the system, right? That was one of the components. And does this address the problems in primary care? And most of the ideas we looked at didn't really pass the test. So what we kept coming back to those, and we'd seen this a little bit at our prior company, Wellness FX, we'd come across a doctor that was just doing things really differently. And we're like, that's weird. And then we'd move on. And then we would meet another one. And that's weird too. And we'd move on. We'd read an article. And eventually what we started to find out is like there was almost like this kind of grassroots community that which would lead you back to the same community of people who all knew each other. And when you went and inserted yourself into that community, so we went to the first direct primary care summit in St. Louis, right? And there was literally, you know, 80 people there or something. And the energy was just kind of really, you could feel the energy, right? And a lot of the time you go to conferences with doctors and, they're not very happy. Well, yeah. these doctors were all really happy, right? And they had heavy patients and they had data about how they're reducing costs. And, and so we kind of just got sucked into the vortex, I guess, and they're still here. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm a huge fan of this whole way of doing doctor business because I agree with you. What we were doing was only for sick people and it was only when it was too late. So I'm curious just back up a tiny bit and talk about your background because it sounds like you might've been in something that was tangential to this, that led you to this. And I, I'd love for people to hear how, because this seems like a hard one, right? In a lot of ways, this is so early stage and it's so, the demand yeah. isn't completely there yet from patients, but I think it will be. But so what was the background that sort of led you to, to say, okay, I think we could take this on and know you could make it work. Yeah, I mean, it did definitely not that it was not the easiest business to build, right? And it was for a tech company, so we spent a lot of money on tech and fundraising. Getting money from investors was, I think I pitched probably 1,000 investors, you know, for the life cycle of this company. Um, you so, talked to 1,000, is that what you said? Probably. That's, at least I mean, that's important yeah. for people to know. Because and not just talk to, yeah, pitched. Pitch, pitch. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've so, talked to more than that. <laughs> it's important though, because it's really hard because 999 people say no, it doesn't mean that. Well, in this case, 950, because we've, we've got about 50 investors. Okay, yeah. okay. okay <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it definitely hardens the, the resolve a little bit being rejected that often. But yeah, it's interesting. It's like, the, my background was I was an engineer and 
kind of as a consultant and I grew up in New Zealand and eventually ended up at business school, went to Stanford and did my MBA. And I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I'd been doing some entrepreneurial things along the way, but wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. So I ended up in venture, venture capital for a little bit and reinvested in this really cool company called Wellness FX. And I was like the analyst on the deal. And so eventually jumped ship and joined the company. And the thing that attracted me to the company was really like, I've been interested historically in not so much in healthcare, but more in the almost like the human performance component, right? And wellness effects, it was really interesting combination of technology and direct-to-consumer clinical diagnostics with a telemedicine offering. And it was like, it was human performance related. And I just go, there's lots of things there that were interesting to me. And that's what got me into healthcare. And it was interesting because although we were really went to employers with this product, but to begin with, it was direct to consumer as well. But even though it's a consumer product and it's a wellness focused thing, it still had hardcore actual like clinical diagnostics and real licensed physicians and real blood jaws and there was sort of real aspects of kind of healthcare in it. And that's what kind of got me plugged into the actual healthcare system from a professional perspective. And that's really also where I started to see kind of the brokenness of the system. You know, you start to get a real understanding of the underlying problems, but also started to see different types of clinicians and wellness coaches and doctors and, you know, all sorts of different healthcare professionals. And we were, I'd say on average at Wellness FX, we're running into the more sort of renegade fringe, you know, doctors. Versus the mainstream, because they were interested in being involved in something like what we're doing. And that's kind of a little bit what sowed the seed, which is, is there something bigger here? Could we go pursue this? That was the journey. It's pretty wild to think about. I'm curious if your mission makes total sense. Do you have to do education with physicians? Like, are you also trying to get physicians to become the kind of physicians that would work with someone like you versus most of the physicians who are? you know, under the insurance plans and have to deal with all that stuff? We don't have to, but with, under our kind of rubric, our vision, our formal mission statement is to redesign the healthcare system to enable yep. easy access to high quality affordable care, right? And there's nothing really about DPC in that per se, but we think direct primary care you know, could be the foundation of that redesigned system and, you know, it should be, right? Yes. And given that, then our role is how can we, A, make it easier to do this, support with technology and things but also we've found that we tie our revenue to this the growth of our customers so as our clients grow we grow and we're a big believer in incentives right so in healthcare and business whatever in this case our incentive is we've created a business model where when our doctors succeed we succeed so that drives you know you could either say hey our mission is to make this you know movement successful and so we're going to invest in education and by the way, when our movement is successful, we make more money. And so investing in education and helping the movement succeed becomes fairly obvious kind of move when you frame it up like that. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, we have our annual summit, Hint Summit, which is a you know, huge kind of initiative we put on. And it's you know, it's pretty well attended. I mean, it's, it's one of the leading industry. It's probably, you, know, you could argue, is the leading industry event. We have what we call DPC Accelerator, which is an you know, educational program. We actually have different content and we have a coach that take people through starting a practice or if you need a scale and things like that. 
we can show with data that we're able to help our customers yep. succeed. We can see the you know the ones in the courses go like this and the ones like that. You can actually see yeah. the difference. So there's a very clear ROI we can tie back. The thing we haven't really, I'd say, cracked the code on yet, it's not for lack of trying, but the thing we haven't cracked the code on is typically people almost like come to us saying, I want to make this move, can you help me? And the thing we haven't cracked the code on is going to people saying, you should want to do this, we yeah. will help you. We haven't made that transition yet at scale. On the margins, we have people shopped in Summit or let's see some of our content, but we haven't built a repeatable process for doing that. But I think part of that is just resistance. It's pretty much like a form of Stockholm syndrome, right? You kind of fall in love with your captors. Well, that happens to yes. patients who yes. are used to insurance. It also yes. happens to doctors who are used to insurance. It also happens to insurance companies that are used to the status quo thing yes. and don't know it's kind of wrong, but that's what they do kind of thing. And so everyone's used to it. Employers are getting people to switch. It's This is a movement, right? It's not. It takes time. But it's happening though. It's definitely happening. Well, I'm curious about two things. So when the doctors that already work with you are more successful, the more successful they get, I imagine you see results from that, as well as bringing doctors who are not doing this yet into your, right, into the program. What you're successful if both of those things or either of those. That's things. right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And that makes it, seems like it would be an easier sell for an investor. But I'm curious because it feels like it's a, you know, changing the healthcare system is like big thing to talk about, bigger than yeah. any of the things, bigger than launching a brand, bigger than having a piece of technology. It's like a fundamentally broken system that nobody seems to have the, I would say the energy or the stamina to change because it's a profound task. So yeah. how do you get investors to believe that you are going to be able to do that? The challenge with fundraising of this, from this business has been a TAM problem. It's an addressable market, total addressable market problem. And on the one hand, you pitch, well, we're going to transform the entire US healthcare system. People think you're insane, right? And they, uh-huh. it's not possible, right? And your way of doing it's not the way to do it and so on and so forth. So it's a bit, it can be hard to go at that end, right? Yeah. You may be close with that, but not lead, right, with that because people yeah. aren't going to yeah. give you the benefit of the doubt there. And also realize it'll take time. On the other end of the spectrum, it's like, okay, well, we're, we're selling to a market that doesn't really exist yet, right, yeah. relative to other markets in healthcare. You know, for me, it, it, as an entrepreneur, I think it, it was really important when we made the decision was like, we kind of realized we were going on a hard road, but it was worth a try because we couldn't think, think of anything else that's actually going to make a difference at scale. And that's going to really truly like change the system versus just be more layers of complexity yes. and more compromise and continued compromise over many over the next few decades. And so we kind of we were like, okay, well, at least we're going to be able to get up and you know, we know we're at least trying to do something here. And then in terms of just getting in, you know, investors, I, mean, I think at the end of the day, in the early days, it was people that just kind of believed me and my co-founder. We sort of, even a lot of people didn't actually really understand what it is we were talking about and they still got this money, right? And yeah. as you kind of move on further and further, to a certain extent, you know, we put one foot in front of the other and executed and showed consistent results over an enduring period of time. And there's a sort of a category of investors that like that consistency over yes. the, you know, this might be a thousand X, but it's probably going to be a zero, right? You know, there's a yes. investors that are, 
are willing to take the more confident bet. And we've just got, you know, very good longitudinal data on we keep growing, our customers keep growing, our revenue keeps going up, we have low churn, you know, a bunch of kind of key metrics. And so we've just been able to bring enough people along with us to uh, keep it going, basically. So what are you thinking is going to happen in two years, five years? Like, what are you wishing the business would look like in two years? Because that's a relatively short amount of time for something like this. And then five years. In two years, I'd anticipate probably our team being 60% bigger than it is today or something. So 60, 70 people, something like that. We're about 40 now. The way I tend to think about it is the vision for him doesn't change ever. Yep. Right. And really just what happens, we're further down the path. So right now we're really being focused on ensure the success of the direct primary care movement. Okay. And we're going to be investing in additional products and different product lines and things to help keep ensuring that. And we can go into the details, but it's probably not super relevant, but just like more product, more capabilities at the ensure the success of this movement, more education, more you know, support. But the next kind of phase of growth for Hint is really around unlocking demand for this type of care. Mm-hmm. And so that's actually one of the reasons we've launched Hint Connect, which is the ability for us to have anyone in our ecosystem, any of our clinicians or EPC providers basically sign a contract with Hint Connect Network. And we all kind of verify, yes, this is a legit, but there's some you know, things we'll do to make sure they kind of reach yeah. minimum bar in terms of what we expect, mm-hmm. what this type of care means. But at the end of the day, we're not really controlling or changing what they're doing. We're yeah. more verifying. And then the ability to take that to larger entities that want to work with this type of care model, but don't necessarily want to organize a thousand doctors. And so that's kind of the, uh, and we actually have a number of networks that run on Hint and our technology, a lot of them are going to be part of this as well. And in fact, many of them are actually going to be using this technology mm-hmm. to scale their networks. So it's really about kind of unlocking liquidity across our ecosystem and unlocking demand. And I'd like to, within the, say the two-year time horizon, have started to show repeatable results for that. Again, to take it back to the core principles, make sure our clients continue to grow and thrive. The third area is, if you think about you know, the healthcare system, it's more than primary care. But the primary care doctor does still control a lot of the actual spend or a lot of the referrals, or should really, right? And so really, if I think in the five-year time horizon, I really start to think about, okay, how can we start to enable communities to form around this community of primary care doctors, Mm -hmm. but again, outside the status quo infrastructure? So there are ways we can start integrating downstream care imaging specialists labs pharmacy and this is already happening by the way in our community it's happening sort of somewhat ad hoc yeah other things we can do to help scale and streamline that and bring that to scale and then if you think about it now you're into the realm of redesigning the system versus just fixing primary care so when you think about creating demand for this kind of care do you have to also think about patient demand or is that not going to be in your purview absolutely and so that's really where hint connect comes in so yeah. hint connect is on the one hand there's doctors in the network on the other hand there's an employer or a group that's organized you know like a, you know, a decent health or we work with through hint connect and to power their dpc offering and so half the lives on our platform are retail or many patients are paying out of pocket 
mm-hmm. uh, for coming yeah. through some type of channel. I'm not sure if our role is, I'm not saying it isn't per se, but I'm not sure if the role we will play as educating the, the end consumer. Because mm-hmm. in a way, what if you think about it, we've got thousands of doctors out there playing that role. And a lot of this comes from word of mouth yep. and referrals. There's a kind of distributed sales force. Can we give them the tools that they need to really create an amazing healthcare experience that's affordable? And that almost in itself should be enough of marketing to go out and scale. I think that's the interesting thought, like, could it become affordable? Because right now I'm seeing it. I mean, I've had one of those doctors for a long time and now there's a waiting list and it's like a two-year waiting list to get into him because he has such a good reputation and a few other doctors like him have popped up, but they're all very, very expensive and hard to imagine a lot of people saying, okay, I'm going to do this like a gym membership to make myself, you know, prevent whatever. I'm just interested in how you help them get it to the place where it's more affordable. Cause I think that's the key to the whole thing. Like, I think everybody would yeah. love to have a doctor who kept them well, if they could imagine themselves. Yeah. yeah. We power a lot of the doctors that you're talking about. They yeah. would typically have a, a higher monthly membership fee and there's sort of the concierge medicine space. Right. Yeah. And the way I tend to think about it is that you can buy a Toyota or you can buy a Ferrari. They're both going to get you. Yeah. In, in many cases, the Toyota actually get you better than this Ferrari, right? Yeah. Because it can't go over rocky stuff or whatever. And so the way I tend to think about it is that, you know, all of those types of cars are great, but there's a lot more Toyotas sold than Ferraris. And right. that's where the scale is going to come from. Yeah. And direct primary care is really like the Toyota. <laughs> you know, it's a fantastic you know, value. It's solid. It's kind of awesome. You know, and I think that's where, you know, if you can get this for $50 a month or $60 a month or $70 a month, you know, that's pretty affordable. And especially if you're saving more than that elsewhere because you're yeah. now reorganizing the rest of the plan around this, you know, this type of care model. To me, the scales comes from affordability and quality. What do you feel like your biggest challenges are right now? Like what keeps you up? What makes you worry? God, this is quite a long list. <laughs> um, yeah. The thing we spend a lot of time thinking about it, and it's just the, you know, with such a long ranging mission, it's, you can't be a zero. I kind of feel like not even just with a, such a long ranging mission, even just with many companies, if you look at a lot of the companies, yeah, sure. You have a few unicorns or whatever. Most companies like are not that most companies take a little bit longer to build. Yes. And when you really like, kind of peel the layers back and you kind of speak to the entrepreneurs you know it's really like the ones that didn't give up and just came yeah. persistence right yeah. and they just keep going forever <laughs> and if you keep doing that the law of compounding you sort of eventually you have a big business and you have big impact yes so i think one of the things that just i wouldn't say it keeps me up because i've got a, a team that does the heavy lift on a lot of this at this point which is just make sure you don't drop the hammer too hard too early Right, make mm-hmm. sure you just you're investing kind of your resources very sort of carefully yeah. so that you don't sit end up in a situation where you don't control your destiny. Yeah. And that's really a trade-off because sometimes there's shiny objects or things you want to do, but require additional investment. It just comes back to like what's your focus, what's your core? Do we really need to make this investment? Or can we can we be a bit more conservative and have our cash last us longer? And that's that a continual just balancing thing the whole time 
and it's across all aspects of the business. It's interesting because, you know, I talk with a lot of CPG brands that are direct to consumer and discipline is something that we talk about all the time because the shiny objects are different, but certainly they're there. It's about over innovating, getting over distributed and not being able to support it. So I think it's interesting that even in a business like yours, you still have to talk about the discipline and, you know, you have this goal that is so big and important, but you must have little milestones along the way, right? Otherwise you feel like you weren't getting anywhere if you didn't at least say, okay, in a year, this is what we want. And it's small relative to our big goal, but it is significant. Yeah, it's just, we're pretty, like, pretty numbers driven, pretty much real time data on all our customers and our performance and our customers' performance. It's not quite real time, it's like daily updated. Yeah. You know, and so all of our financial planning and hiring is most of our expense, right? So it's really kind of tied to our performance. And we try to not get too far ahead of our skis. So there's really at any moment in time I can flip a switch and we could coast through to profitability if we wanted to. Yeah. Um, it would take maybe it would take a bit of time or whatever, but we're in a place where we we can control our destiny by slowing down a little bit. But we can also speed up a little bit if things are going better. And we have and so that's just a continual dance that we play, I guess. Gets you most excited. Like what keeps you going? Because I'm sure you've had days or maybe you don't, but I feel like all entrepreneurs have those days where they're like, oh, this is a hard road. Maybe this was too hard. I don't know. Do you have those? Yeah, yeah all the time. <laughs> I'd say that I sort of one of the things that keeps me going is, is that, you know, our customers and our community, I think that they, you know, they really rely on us. I mean, we're putting five, six hundred, seven hundred million dollars a year through a platform or something. You know, there's like a lot of people's livelihoods and really you know i sort of feel as though we're a part of this movement if we fail i sort of feel like the movement probably wouldn't fail but like it would definitely set it back a little bit yeah so that definitely keeps me going i think also just you know at the end of the day it's like our team all of our team are putting the blood sweat and tears in to achieve this i feel a responsibility to to look after them and then and i've made commitments to and my investors that's really like the three stakeholders right here and then it's also fun i mean like i choose to do this right it's a tough job but i also you know i kind of like the if it succeeds then it's my team obviously that did all the hard work but like definitely if it succeeds there's a role i played there if it fails it's like well that's actually my fault because i hope to hide the wrong team or whatever right and so I like that directness of the feedback loop where yeah. I can control my destiny. And if it's not going well, it's like, well, I'll change it. I have that power and to change things. And I try to not use it very often because it, I sort of believe that it's better to empower great thinkers and other people to do it. But yeah. if things aren't going to plan, I could just, I could point the company in exactly the opposite direction if I wanted to. Yeah, because you know, it's a controlling company, right? So yeah. I'm curious about one more thing. And I know I want to be respectful of your time, but did COVID help you guys from a getting doctors on board perspective? I mean, from a food perspective and a health perspective, I think they're waning a little bit now, but there was this big surge of concern and wanting to be proactively healthy and eating proactively to be healthier. And I would imagine that also could have increased the number of people who would like to have care that is the kind of care you're talking about. But I'm curious if that actually was true for you guys. Yeah, I'd say COVID, you know, the pandemic, it was interesting. When you looked at healthcare, if you sort of like a bunch of data on primary care, 
office visits fell off the charts. A bunch of groups, independent clinics went out of business. It was like, you know, in the time when you need healthcare providers, they're you know, going out of business, right? Well, it doesn't seem right. When you looked at our customers, it was like nothing happened. Interesting. Right? So they kept growing at the same rate. We kept yep. growing at the same rate. It was as though it was pandemic resistant is what I like to say. So it didn't really like necessarily help or hurt per se, because our customers are already doing telemedicine you know, a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah. They can pivot a little bit more to that. They yes. have weird incentives around, hey, we don't make as much money on this thing, so we're going to do it now just to keep going, but you know, go back to the other thing once we can go back to the other thing because that's where all the money is. None of that kind of weird incentive. It was like, no, yes. I've got my patients and I'm going to – if they, oh, you know what? They need COVID testing. Okay, I'll do that, right? You know, that's what healthcare is right now for, our, for my community. Okay, we'll figure that out. And just I think of it as like our customers are just in a flow state with the needs of their community and met them where they need to be met. So I think that there isn't any necessarily like direct impact, but I do think that the COVID is an accelerant to the broader macro trends towards that's not working over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like clearly and especially now in the pandemic which and so you know employers are starting to scratch their heads more is do we really want to you know remain captives to the system doctors are like oh my gosh i went out of business that's not good patients and so i, th- I think it's it's like a delay almost a delay function but it definitely was an accelerated at a macro level and we're starting to see that some of that come online now but it was very interesting just looking at the data because I thought, oh my God, everything's employers are going to terminate all their contracts. No, the employers were like, I need my back to work programs. Can you guys help with that? No mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And also amazing for you to be able to say we're sort of pandemic proof because I think what happened to a lot of companies was exactly what you alluded to. COVID spiked them in an artificial way. And then the drop-off was pretty dramatic too. And so it was just a really confusing time and very hard to predict. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of cool that, yep. that what you're doing is steady. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like COVID made winners and losers, but it didn't make us anything. <laughs> the thing it did do to us is I was in a fundraising process at the beginning of when COVID kind of kicked off. And I think a few weeks before that, I started fundraising. Or and no, it was probably maybe a month before or something like yeah. that. And it actually I did actually have to lay off about a third of my team, unfortunately, because of that balance I was talking about in terms yeah. of the ability to coast through to profitability. Yes. I lost control of that when I lost control of fundraising. Yeah. So I back to like a zero is not an option. If I can't control fundraising, I need to yeah. I need to cut right now because I hadn't the runway needed to keep coasting. Actually, the situation we're in right now, I'm back to like not needing you know, like we don't need to fundraise ever again if we don't want to. You know, at that moment in time, I, I didn't, I wasn't quite there yet. That must be a great feeling to know, at least to know. Like maybe you'll fundraise, maybe you won't, but knowing you don't need to must feel really good. Yeah, it feels good, but it also, mate, if that's your mindset, you have to be careful and spend all your money, you know. Yep, yep, <laughs> and yep. it's very easy to spend, you know, it's just like time, you know, you'll, people will yes. fill the time available up to the thing that's typically yeah. what happens with money as well like you, totally. you use it all up <laughs> just yeah uh, just because it's there and yeah. that, that's something we've just got to be very careful about the reality is like i need to be careful i have a lot of scaffolding around me with my team because i'll spend the money if i don't have the team yeah <laughs> to you know hold me accountable as well yeah yeah i think that's really important to think about 
Do you have, uh, I just want to ask you one more question and then I will let you yeah, go. I've I'm got wondering... time. I don't have anything right now. Okay, good. Do you have any words of wisdom for people who, you know, your company is different. <clears throat> this is your technology company and you don't have to think so much about cost of goods and all that stuff, but mm-hmm. you have the same issues. You've got to be able to get profitable quickly and manage your cash. So, and also your state of mind so that you can keep going when it gets hard. So do you have any words of wisdom for founders or people who are trying to start something that, you know, your goal is big. It's so big. And and I think to be able to say, I feel confident that I'm going to be able to create a path to this. It's amazing. But I think it's hard to see sometimes if you're in it every day. I think one of them is, you know, when you start a company, like discount all of the success cases you see on the front page of this or that, because probabilistically you're not going to be that. You can strive for it, don't get me wrong, right? But probabilistically you're going to be in the middle of the bell curve somewhere, right? And so in the middle of the bell curve, it's pretty different to the top 1% of the bell curve. And so with that in mind, I think you want to like enjoy life, obviously. And so you want to either figure out something where there's just a ton of passion and like really strong mission or personal passion or whatever. And in this case, like for us, it was like, okay, well, could we redesign the healthcare system? That'd be pretty fun. It's going to take a long time though. And so, and it may not be easy. It's actually a hard business to build, right? And so that was sort of a, almost like a commitment we made up front. And it's not always easy, right? Like there's days where I'm like, man, I should have done something else. And so it's either that or just have a lot of conviction about the idea you have. If it's more of a financial motivation or just, a, you know, you just want to do something, it's not really mission driven, have high conviction, but also fail fast. You know, like in the, we don't want to fail fast, right? We want to succeed slowly. <laughs> But if you're doing something where don't think you could last a long time on pure mission alone, right, then make sure you're set up to, and be okay with failure and be in a position where you can back out of something or you can pivot or you can have a failure and not be a problem for you and then go at it, right, and, and give it a shot. And then probably the main thing that I struggle with this, and this is everyone kind of says this, this is not, nothing new, but like focus really like figure out what are the number the small number of really important things you need to do yeah and do those well and that's really relevant in any business at any scale right and i personally struggle with this one majorly because i just see so many opportunities in this and that but i think it's just having that discipline to really kind of focus your energy on a small number of important things that's probably the most important thing in building a business and the hardest for a an owner, an entrepreneur, someone who's a founder, right? Because there's so many things you could be doing. I yeah, agree with totally. you. Sometimes it's hard to stop yourself because you see lots of things that are possibilities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think the failing fast thing is interesting because you're not really saying fail fast, meaning be done. You're saying there are a lot of ways to fail and learn and it's going to happen all the time, right? Like you make a decision, it's not the right one. You have to move on pretty quickly from it and not sort of wallow and yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, there's actually some connectivity between the fail fast and focus concept, which is like, you know, yes, there's an entrepreneur, there's a lot of different things you could be working on at any moment in time. But probably there's only one or two things that will really like move the needle. Yes. And so the other things, it's like, can you get those other things done 80 20 good? Yeah. Uh, like, 
Yep. You know, you're you good enough. Because really, yep. like, this one thing over here matters. If this thing is true or false, actually, you know, if it's true, then, okay, that's a gate to the next thing. If it's false, well, maybe that kills your business. Or you need to, there's another path you go down. If you sort of end up in a situation where you're trying to do all of the things all the time and you haven't identified the true gates that you need yeah. to get through yeah. to figure out the next thing or the metric you need to hit or whatever, then you'll end up in this sort of no man's land of like, well, you're kind of doing okay, but not really, you know, mm-hmm. and not learning fast enough such that you're able to figure out, is this what I want to do or do I actually want to do something else? Yeah, all good advice. Any Thing you want to leave us with before we wrap up anything you want to say that you know either about the business or about being a founder or partner not really i think you know just go you know follow your passion go change the world you know love it it's <laughs> trying to leave the world in a better place than you in it right like that's a pretty good rubric if you can sort of like leave the world in a better place i, I kind of feel like that's a pretty good rubric for life I do too. I think it's awesome. And you're obviously doing that. And I love it. I mean, I'm rooting for you guys because I'm rooting for the whole system. I want it to change so badly. And I think it's, it's time, like it's happening. It's just, everyone isn't feeling it yet, but it's definitely time. Congratulations on all the things you're doing. I'm really excited to see where you guys go. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.